This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Glass. Our goal here at the Word of the Week is clarity. Well, okay, that's not quite true. Our goal here at the Word of the Week is popularity. We're human beings, after all, and we want to be liked. And we want to be renowned. And one of the ways to achieve that is to do something no one else is doing and do it really well. And so, we have combined our love of gaming with our love of learning and of weaving stories and connections and of producing high-quality audio productions into something that hopefully stands out as unique, interesting, and entertaining among the community that shares our passions and interests. Sometimes our compulsion to over-explain is an absolute curse. Our point is that we here at the Word of the Week strive for clarity and transparency. We wish to illuminate and to be a vessel, a container, into which we can pour knowledge and deliver it to you. And of course, we strive to be aesthetically pleasing, to be, dare we say it, a work of art. But you probably never thought of us that way. After all, we're just a podcast. Podcasts are everywhere. And if you consider podcasts to merely be continuations of radio segments, an outgrowth of radio dramas, which were themselves an outgrowth of theater performance, they've been around for centuries. And speaking of things that have been evolving for centuries and are totally ubiquitous, that provide transparency and illumination, that serve as containers, and that are works of art, let's talk about glass and look forward to a future episode on tortured contrived metaphors. Glass is one of those things that's everywhere, in the real world and in the gaming world, and yet we rarely give it much of a thought. When we peer through a window, we don't look at the glass, we look at the outside. When we find a magic potion, we don't care about the bottle, we care about what magical powers the liquid has. And inside cathedrals and churches, we don't think about the stained glass itself. We care about which god it depicts and whether any of the treasures we're going to find inside is cursed by said god. That's accepting those video games in which we can make exceptionally powerful weapons and items out of glass. Which, if they actually mean obsidian, is fair enough. But actual glass? No. In our last episode, we explained that obsidian is a kind of glass, and we hinted at what that means. Glass is a non-crystalline solid. It is rigid and holds its shape, but unlike most solids, that's not because the molecules are locked into a complex geometrical pattern. Instead, it's because the molecules just don't have enough energy to move around. This distinction has led to a popular myth that glass is actually not a solid at all. It's a liquid that just flows very, very slowly. As evidence, people point to the fact that very old windows are thicker at the bottom than at the top. The idea is that gravity has caused the very slowly flowing liquid glass to settle at the bottom. And we're here to tell you that that's not true. But we're also here to tell you that even scientists weren't sure why it wasn't true for a very long time. 
See, our basic understanding of matter is that there are five states of matter. Now, in school, you probably learned about three. You probably learned that gases are very high energy. The molecules are rushing around unconstrained. Gases flow and expand to fill their containers. They spread out, diffuse, and mix together. Liquids flow, too, and they will conform to the shape of their container. But the molecules are a little calmer, and various intermolecular forces hold the liquid together. That's why it doesn't expand. Solids are at the lowest energy state. The molecules are locked into position by atomic and molecular forces and can't flow at all. And then there's plasma, which is like a supercharged gas. Now that has nothing to do with blood. The plasma in your blood is just a liquid part of your blood. It's just a name. Plasmas are what happens when you heat up a gas so much that you actually start to disrupt the atoms inside. That leaves the atoms with electric charges, but it also leaves them very diffuse. So much so that the molecular forces between the atoms are non-existent. And that allows electrical and magnetic forces to flow very easily through plasmas. See, in the other states of matter, Electrical and magnetic forces are limited by the other forces holding the stuff together, but not in plasmas. Neon lights are full of plasma, as are those little glass lightning ball thingies called plasma globes. And it's those weird electrical properties that make them glow so brightly when just a little bit of electricity passes through it. Stars are also pretty much entirely made of plasma, and that's what allows the energy generated deep in their hearts to reach the surface and radiate out into space. Even they might be giants had to update their song. The light that comes out of the sun actually travels 400,000 miles from the center of the sun just to get to the surface. Since the sun is only 200,000 miles from Earth on average, that means the light from the sun actually covers more distance getting out of the sun than it does getting to the earth. And that's only possible because of plasma. The final state of matter is the Bose-Einstein condensate. And these are basically super solids. They are solids that are so solid that the individual atoms cease to exist and are compacted into a single superatom. Because of quantum physics, they have some very strange and useful properties. But we're not going to jump down that particular rabbit hole just yet. But we digress. The point is that for a long time, scientists called glass an amorphous solid. Amorphous means without a shape. But there was a lot of argument as to whether it should be considered a solid or a liquid or whether it flowed or whether it represented a completely different state of matter or what. In certain experiments, it did appear that glass continued to flow on the molecular level after it cooled. But in 2015, researchers at the University of Bristol in England and Kyoto University in Japan finally settled the question once and for all. What they discovered is that glass does continue to flow for time after it is formed. But inside the molecules are actually arranging themselves into crystals. Those crystalline portions grow until eventually the entire chunk of glass is a true crystalline solid. That said, the solidification happens completely 
only at extremely low temperatures. So glass is partially crystallized, but it does have portions that flow like a liquid, very slowly. So slowly, in fact, that it would take 10 million years for a window pane's shape to change due to the flow. Regardless, the amount of crystallization in glass was enough, according to the researchers, for them to say definitively that glass is a solid, not a liquid, and not some weird other thing. But enough about chemistry, let's talk about where glass actually came from, and how it's made, and how it's been used. In truth, we're not entirely sure who invented glass. Pliny the Elder, the famous Roman historian of the first century CE, presented one theory. He told a story about a group of Phoenician merchants traveling to Syria. Their ship, he said, was loaded with something called nitrum. Now, Pliny wrote a lot about this substance, which was apparently important in various chemical and medical procedures, and it was probably a naturally occurring mixture of various minerals, including sulfur, sodium bicarbonate, and saltpeter. The important part for this story is that it was a caustic substance that burned quite hot. The merchants landed on a beach and they decided to prepare a meal, but they didn't have any stones to prop up their cooking pot, so they used lumps of nitrum. The nitrum burned and melted and fused with the sand and the merchants discovered rivulets of a strange glassy substance. Glass. But this story probably isn't true. What is true is that around 3500 BCE in Mesopotamia in Egypt, folks discovered that if you heated sand and mixed in minerals like soda ash, it would melt into a translucent liquid which would then harden into a translucent glass. Now glass making wasn't easy. It required extremely high heat and there wasn't much you could do with the glass. So the earliest glass artifacts were either small beads of glass or items that were glazed with glass. And in fact, glaze and glass come from the same root and have related meanings. To glaze means to cover with a translucent substance. For example, to cover a piece of pottery with a glass coating. Or to cover a ham with a honey mixture. But to glaze also means to cover openings with a translucent object, like to fit a window pane into a window frame. And that is why window makers became known as glaziers. Eventually, the Egyptians figured out how to press glass, but they didn't use it very much. Glass was still difficult to manufacture in large quantities, and there didn't seem to be much use for the stuff. So they mainly used it to glaze pottery, to make jewelry, and for small decorative items. But in the first century BC, along the coast of modern-day Syria and Palestine, someone made a discovery that would really allow glass to take off. They discovered that if you stuck a small pipe into a blob of molten glass, you could blow a glass bubble. And if you let that bubble harden, you had a glass container. Within a few years, glass blowing techniques became very advanced. By heating and cooling portions of the glass, spinning them, shearing them, or pinching them off, one could make very complex hollow shapes out of glass. 
To this day, glass blowers, also called gaffers or glassmiths, use the same basic tools and techniques that were invented two millennia ago when free-blowing glass. Of course, there are other newer techniques. For example, mold blowing involves inflating the glass inside of a mold to produce a particular hollow shape. In 63 BCE, the Roman Empire invaded and conquered the land of Judea, which included the areas of modern-day Israel and Palestine. And with that, they were exposed to glass manufacture and blown glass for the first time. And they loved this stuff, loved it. Glass exploded in popularity and spread across the Roman Empire. And as the Roman Empire spread across Europe, glass became one of the most prominent trade commodities. The love of glass in Rome and Italy was so prevalent that by 1000 CE, Venice became the center for glass production in the entire world. Meanwhile, in the Middle East, Persian chemists had discovered recipes for coloring glass by changing the mineral content. By the 6th century CE, it was possible to produce glass of just about any color one could imagine. And, with the production of small bits of poured and polished, flat-colored glass, a new tradition began. One of the first places it caught on was in England, of all places. In the mid-600s, a nobleman man named Benedict Biscop traveled to Rome and became enamored of Christianity. On his return to his home in the kingdom of Northumbria in Britain, he requested land from his king to build a Christian monastery. He imported stonemasons from France and expert glaziers to build the structure, which he dedicated to St. Paul. And St. Paul's monastery at Jaro became one of the first modern stone buildings to be constructed in the British Isles. Well, modern for its time. Masonry buildings hadn't been built in Britain since the Roman Empire had occupied it, and the glaziers created elaborate windows of colored glass depicting various saints and apostles. To this day, the stained glass windows at Jaro remain among the oldest complete examples of stained glass windows in the world. Soon after its construction, St. Paul's at Jaro became one of the most famous centers for religious and scholarly pursuits in all of Britain. And that was almost entirely due to the influence of one man, St. Bede, also known as the Venerable Bede. Bede entered the monastery at the age of seven and was educated by Benedict Biscop. In 686, the plague came to St. Paul's and many of the monks died. Only two monks remained who were trained and qualified to conduct all of the various religious rites and services in the monastery. One of whom was the teenaged Bede. Working tirelessly around the clock and dividing the duties between them, the young Bede and the one remaining monk managed to perform all of the required services and duties of the monastery while also training and qualifying new monks. Later in life, Bede began to focus on scholarship and writing. He started by translating important texts, but then moved on to interpreting religious and scholarly teachings and writing his own books. One such book nearly got him into trouble when he used biblical verse 
to calculate the age of the earth and arrived at a figure that was 2,000 years different than the accepted church doctrine indicated at the time. He was eventually cleared of heresy and went on to write many other books about theology, grammar, history, and even music. But we digress. Stained glass became an important art in the Christian church and was also adopted by the new Islamic faith in the Middle East. Gradually, it became a predominantly Catholic art. In the Gothic period of the 13th and 14th century, stained glass became the centerpiece of the elaborate cathedral architecture of the time. And, while stained glass art went into decline during the Renaissance as art began to focus on realism and on painting, and further declined in the 1600s when the aesthetic focus shifted to elaborate interior design, lavish interior decorations and paintings required clear glass windows that would permit as much light as possible. Later Gothic revivals in the 17th century would see a renewed interest in stained glass. While we're on this subject, we should probably discuss glass windows. Not the stained glass kind, the normal kind. The kind that wouldn't exist in a fantasy game based on the Middle Ages. That's right, the action heroes in your Dungeons & Dragons game can certainly go busting through beautiful stained glass windows. But they probably wouldn't find any normal clear glass windows to bust through. Now, the Romans were the first to use glass windows. Their earliest windows consisted of sheets of glass beads stuck in a wooden frame. And they weren't particularly transparent, though they were translucent. Oh, and since we brought it up, there is a difference between transparent and translucent. Something is translucent if it allows light to pass through it. Trans is the Latin prefix that means across or through, and lucent comes from the word for light. Something is transparent if it allows a clear image to pass through it, which is why it comes from the same root word as apparent. Transparent means allowing an appearance through. So those old Roman windows were translucent because light could shine through, but you couldn't see clearly through them. But then, Roman glass blowers discovered you could blow out big spheres of very thin glass, cut them in half, and flatten them to make big sheets of transparent glass. Then, you could cut window panes of glass out of the flat sheets. So why didn't the folks in the Middle Ages have windows of paned glass? Well, because these techniques were forgotten like so many other technologies after the fall of the Roman Empire. It wasn't until the 14th century that French glassblowers figured out a new way to make flat sheets of glass, which they called crown glass. Once again, you started with a bubble of blown glass. But you would take that bubble and put it on the middle of a spinning disc-like turntable and spin it very fast. The glass would spread out and flatten out in a circular disc, and you could cut flat planes of glass out of the disc. The technique did have one odd side effect. The glass sheets weren't entirely uniform. The outer edge would be thicker due to the centrifugal forces spreading out the glass. But glaziers simply mounted the heavier, thick edge of the windows at the bottom. And this is why old windows are thicker at the bottom. It has nothing to do with glass being a very slow-moving liquid. 
even with the development of crown glass. It should be noted that glass windows remained a luxury item until the beginning of the 17th century. So what was a peasant to do in the Middle Ages? They needed to let light into their house, but they also couldn't leave open holes in the wall because of things like weather and winter. So the most common practice was to soak a clean, thin animal skin in oil. That would render the skin translucent, and it could be used as a covering for a small window. And during the Middle Ages, windows were kept small to minimize the amount of heat lost during the night and the winter months. But before we close the window on glass, let's take a moment to reflect on one other property of glass. It's reflectiveness. See, glass isn't completely transparent, and it also isn't completely absorbent. Because, molecularly speaking, glass is a mess, it does some funny things to light. It allows a portion of the light that hits it to pass through, but it also reflects a portion of the light that hits it back to where it came from. Normally, you don't notice the reflection because the light coming through the glass from the other side overwhelms the reflection. But if you have a piece of glass mounted on something dark or opaque, you can see the reflection bouncing back. That is, of course, how mirrors are made. And that's also why you can see your reflection in windows at night, but not so much during the day. That's also how the glass night saved the town Saffron Walden in Essex, England, from a basilisk. A basilisk is a mythical creature whose name comes from the Greek basileus, meaning sovereign or ruler. And according to the legend, it was the king of snakes, and it was the most poisonous of all creatures on earth. Pliny the Elder, yes, him again, described it as so venomous that it leaves a trail of deadly venom in its wake, and even its gaze is lethal. The basilisk legend is based on the Egyptian cobra, which can spit venom at its prey, and so it doesn't need to bite to kill. The mongoose is the natural enemy of the Egyptian cobra, being immune to its venom and fast enough to avoid the cobra's bite. And that gives rise to the myth that only a weasel could kill a basilisk. The basilisk, supposedly, couldn't stand its powerful odor. What's interesting is that the basilisk and the cockatrice may once have been the same animal. And the mix-up appears to start in the Bible. One translation of the Bible says that a snake can give birth to a basilisk, and that can give birth to a flying dragon. But the King James Bible says that the serpent can give birth to a cockatrice, and that can give birth to a flying, fiery serpent. In the famous Canterbury Tales, Chaucer refers to the monster as a basilcock. So what is a cockatrice? A cockatrice is part serpent, part rooster. It is lethally poisonous and its gaze can kill you. Sound familiar? Yeah. Anyway, in 1599 it seems this town called Saffron Walden had become home to a basilisk. 
at least according to a pamphlet circulated about a century later in the area. Many were killed by the strange, unidentifiable monsters. Some had been bitten, some poisoned, and some were unmarked. Baffled and terrified, the reeve, or sheriff, of the town consulted a local wise woman, and she told him that the creature was a basilisk. She explained that its gaze was deadly and that it didn't even close its eyes to sleep. It only ever closed its eyes to drink, and it was filled with poison. Its blood was so poisonous that if you stabbed the thing, even with a spear, the poison would creep right up the weapon and kill you. The Reeve had no idea what to do. So he reached out to a knight that was traveling through the area and told him everything. But the knight had no idea what to do about the basilisk. And as the troubled knight walked the streets one evening, so the story goes, he saw his reflection in a broken window, a sad and powerless old man. And the next day he left town leaving the terrified townsfolk hopeless and despairing. But the knight returned a week later, and he was clad in shimmering armor made of mirrors of pure crystal glass. He hadn't abandoned them. He just had to commission a suit of armor. And he armed himself with a branch of rowan wood and a handful of an herb called rue, which were balms for the basilisk's poison. And when he went to do battle with the basilisk, the basilisk turned on him and saw only its own reflection and dropped dead. For the knight had realized something when he saw his reflection. He understood why the creature always closed its eyes when it took a drink. The basilisk knew its gaze was so deadly, it would even kill itself with its gaze. And that is the story of the Glass Knight of Saffron Walden. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. 